If you're looking to sell your private company stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. With more than $4 billion in company-approved transactions, SharesPost is the leading marketplace for private company shares. To learn more, visit us at sharespost.com slash equity. Hello, and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital podcast. I'm TechCrunch's Kate Clark, and I'm joined this week by TechCrunch's Silicon Valley editor, Connie Loizos. Hi, Connie. How's it going? Hello, Kate. How are you? And our special guest, Rebecca Lynn, a general partner at Canvas Ventures. Thanks for joining us, Rebecca. Thank you. Okay, so it's been a busy week as usual in startup land, and we want to start off by discussing two of the biggest rounds this week. Connie, do you want to start us off with StockX? Yes, I would love to. So, StockX. Uh, StockX, as many of you probably already know, is an online marketplace for selling sort of limited edition or high value sneakers, streetwear, handbags, watches. It raised $110 million in funding uh, this week at a post money valuation of a billion dollars, which is none too shabby for a four year old company that's um, based in Detroit but has really uh, exploded in popularity in the last couple of years. Um, I guess the company is positioning itself for an IPO. Uh, the co-founder and founding CEO, Josh Luber, stepped aside and uh, an e-commerce veteran um, from eBay and StubHub, Scott Cutler, took the reins. Though I guess Luber will remain on the board. So um, what do we think of this one, guys? I think this is really interesting. One, uh, it is from Detroit, which I think is interesting in, in and of itself. It's the second company I've seen in just a couple days out of Detroit. And what I've been told there is that's a real up-and-coming kind of environment to keep an eye on, potentially, for the future. I think it's actually the biggest round, maybe, for Detroit. Is that It might be, actually. Yeah. It might be the biggest round ever for a company out of Detroit in this area, especially in, in the startup area. And it really is two big trends that we're seeing. You know, one is this proliferation of shoe brands, right? So although they don't, they don't have their own shoe brand, we're seeing you know, Allbirds and Rothy's and others come up and create these huge new brands, which I think is interesting. And the other one is this, this proliferation of very verticalized, specialized secondhand consignment marketplaces. So we see the Real Real, we've seen Goat, we've seen several of these come up. Poshmark is, is one as well that uh, we've been following pretty closely. And these, you know, these, these very verticalized um, marketplace consignment stores are important just because of the proliferation of, of counterfeit and fraud. And so people look to them to provide that stamp of authenticity. Right. And it's interesting. So you mentioned the Real Real, which is actually going public um, at long last on Friday. I'm very excited for so the exciting. CEO. Very exciting. The CEO, Julie Wainwright, has, um, was actually the CEO of Pets.com long ago and has been through the cycle numerous times. Um, uh, but I love her company and I'm excited for her. But it's interesting. I, I, the journal wrote a story this week asking if um, the resources that it pours into authenticating its luxury items could sort of be a tax over time. The company's not profitable. This company is also not profitable. Um, and it's the, there's sort of like a science to authenticating shoes. Or actually, there's there's not much of one, but it's like uh, I, I my, my sons are um, sort of old enough to be into this a little bit. Um, so we'd watched a video where this guy was sort of like, you got to check the box. You have to smell the shoes for toxins because I guess there's sort of like certain glues that... Um, fake factories use. Um, and anyway, I just, I, I think it's very interesting, but it's, it's, um, quite the opposite of a science. I think there's just sort of like a lot of pattern recognition in the shoe market that goes into authenticating things. Well, I think that's what makes this one potentially really interesting is there's just one kind of product they're selling. It's just the shoes. It's And they are, they're starting to branch out right into some other things. I think as you add those categories on your operational efficiency, you just really has to scale with that. But, you know, doing one vertical and doing it incredibly well can really help with those, those efficiencies, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I think we're going to see a lot more copycats too in the space, like with really specific 
specific to streetwear and the marketplaces for these kind of sneakers. I don't know a lot about that. Just, you know, not as somebody that really is into streetwear or sneakers like that. But I know we also have Goat, which raised a ton of money as well. And that's another one that's focused completely on, I think, authentication of of, uh, secondhand really nice sneakers. It's just interesting how it's become so pervasive in two years' time. Like Mm -hmm. the editor of TechCrunch, Matthew Panzerino, is like a renowned uh, shoe-obsessive person um but even my my kids are at camp summer camp this week and the little one was telling me how his his his, uh, camp counselor who's a college senior senior has 300 pairs of shoes and he wears a different pair of shoes every day so i think that's kind of you know like insane wow but that's the culture (laughs) you know you buy these shoes you sell these shoes it's really becoming very kind of well you you trade them like an asset essentially and so it's a it's a way for people to sort of invest in an asset and and buy and sell as well so it it is interesting and rebecca i don't know how much you cover like blockchain stuff but i've even heard of startups that are starting to i can't remember the name of the company but it basically photographs um, a, a rare pair of shoes and then it creates like t- or photographs it and documents it in other ways and then you can buy like um, cards sort of uh, through the blockchain so you have like a special um, representative of, of that particular shoe because everyone's like you never end up wearing them anyway but here you have like a limited edition card of the shoe so it's getting stranger and stranger but well have you heard of that one company rally road Mm-mm. I can't there's it's a company a former tech crunch writer now works there and they um, they allow you to like invest in uh, things like cars, like you own a piece of a oh, car. Oh, fractional ownership. Okay. Yeah, and then they later on. So it's very confusing, and I'm not going to do a great job explaining it, but it's kind of along the, in the same vein. So I think the most um, the most brilliant sort of execution of this I might have seen is called Chic Shoes. Totally not venture backed. They're over here on Market Street, and the guy basically is completely bootstrapped, and he owns tons of real estate and his own his own stores. But what he does is he uses these really high end shoes, and he announces it ahead of time to get a line out the door. But he produces his own brands of much less expensive shoes, where he get, makes very high margin on them. And he does incredibly well by using these sort of like high end uh, sneakers as ways to get sort of foot traffic. And then he can sell his well, his own shoes, which make, makes a ton of sense. Yeah. And I guess culturally, again, not, not knowing anything. So please don't like tweet me. <laughs> Tell me what an idiot I am. <laughs> but I guess culturally, it's better to get something that's sort of um, influenced by another shoe rather than a knockoff. Like that's perfectly acceptable. Something that's a little bit more affordable. Okay, well, we should probably move on to the next big round of the week, and that was for a company called Cameo. So anyone who uses Instagram's probably come across this. I know just because I follow celebrities and influencers on Instagram, I'd seen ads for Cameo, but um, it's an app and website where you can pay to have a celebrity, an athlete, an influencer, some kind of thought leader, maybe even a CEO send you a personalized video message. So I think um, it kind of gained popularity because people were paying to have their favorite be celebrity send them a happy birthday note or something like that which is um you know really exciting and you pay anywhere from five to ten dollars to three thousand dollars to have these video messages sent to your to yourself or to your friend presumably so they raised 50 million this week from kleiner perkins with participation from the turn-in group spark ventures bain capital and lightspeed and this round valued the company at about three hundred million. We've heard so pretty, pretty um, notable fundraise for this relatively young company. I think they launched in twenty seventeen. And also, the co-founders kind of came from nowhere. I mean, the um, Steve Galanis, who I think yeah. is the CEO, was like last a senior account executive at LinkedIn. His co-founder, I don't know if you know anything about him, Devin Spindler, was apparently a star on Vine, the now defunct uh, social video service, and he had tons of views. But he was sort of aggravated that he could never monetize his popularity. So I guess this was sort of where 
where the came, you know, the genesis of the idea came from. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really great idea mm-hmm. because people will pay for those kinds of things and they'll pay $10 is not a significant amount of money. And they said they're hyper focused on those smaller purchases because the more, you know, your average person pays $10 for a cameo video, the more that video is shared online, the more free advertising they get. But someone pays, uh, he's with the Stephen told me nine people have paid Snoop Dogg. Well, yeah, I've paid three thousand for a Snoop Dogg wow. show. Oh, is that right? Yeah, and he was like, "That's great and all, but like those, while it may bring in um, you know, the company a lot of money because they do take a twenty five percent cut of each transaction, uh, it's it's less um, influential, I think, in in actually getting the brand out there." Yeah, I love this new revenue stream. I mean, influencers are forced. I think they're here to stay, and they're definitely growing. It's a channel and category we're paying a lot of attention to uh, in venture. And it's really great to see these new revenue streams for sort of self-made influencers and these sort of micro celebrities that have a really loyal following of people to be able to, to monetize their popularity and monetize their work. Yeah, I think um, one thing Steven said on our call, it's like a lot of influencers are, in order to make money on, say, Instagram, they partner with brands that they don't really believe in or who mistreat them or whatever it may be. But I mean, they're taking ownership over their own earnings by working with companies like Cameo, which all they're doing is, you know, maybe saying happy birthday. Like, it's a pretty innocent and great way for them to make money. That's interesting. But but the micro celebrity angle is interesting, too. So they have 15,000 celebrities that they said they believe could expand to 5 million yeah, internationally. Hard to believe. But. So do you know, like, of those 15,000, are they, like, people that we would recognize? I saw some of the names were, like, Gary, Gary Busey and Jennifer Love Hewitt and people that you... You have to have those, right? Again, <laughs> you have to have, you have, those. Have, to have the halo right, effect, right. right? But otherwise, I wonder how do they sort of establish who else... Yeah, like, I mean, they-, they do... I did... I perused the list of uh, people they've got on their roster. You know, it's, like, Charlie Sheen, some people you mentioned. I mean, like, it's it's almost entirely BC-level celebrities with the, few, the occasional Snoop Dogg. And he said um, it's helped people like Snoop Dogg have have um, kind of been evangelist for the brand. Like he said, Snoop Dogg brought iced tea into the mix. Um, so I think there's a little oh, bit no, of that. No, pun intended. How do, they, how do they vet just what the content is that's being That is, set? Yeah, I yeah. didn't get a good answer. I, I wondered the same because I, I was reading, the New York Times did a great story on Cameo, uh, you know, a few months back. Uh-huh. And um, the writer paid for like 10 different Cameos. And one of the ones she paid for was from Lindsay Lohan's mom, whose name is Dina Lohan, who is, you know, I guess somewhat known just for being a bit of a character and her videos were just like she was saying the wrong names she was she was just not even saying the person's name she was doing all sorts of things that like would probably be irritating if you paid any amount of money for her video so I kind of wonder how how they're moderating that it probably will come up more as they expand I did tell my husband in fairness that I would pay a lot of money to have Christian Bale make me a little socialized (laughs) message (laughs) so there probably are sort of edge cases perfect but yeah so with the funding they said their big focus now is actually going to be international markets focusing on areas where they haven't really put any effort into and I think they've seen a lot of organic growth in the U.S. and I think they're kind of counting on you know if they do hire teams that are based out in these other markets sales teams who pretty much are charged with just talent acquisition, they'll also see a lot of growth skyrocket. Yeah. And it's certainly appealing for the talent. Um, I think they told Variety maybe that their some of their uh, top talent makes more than $100,000 a month, which oh, is wow. pretty on, nice. If just, you're just on Cameo. Yeah, yeah, just, well, and the talent will bring the consumers into their platform, sure. too. So they're, they've got the influencers. They will actually pull everyone in. And then, yeah. Right. And there, there are so many use cases. Like, I was so surprised when I, when I talked to them. Like, they said they've noticed a lot of enterprise sales teams paying for Cameos to congratulate when, like, a big sale is made. 
Yes, yeah. I thought that was really interesting. And job yeah, totally. and job recruitment, also so smart. So using them as job offers. So sending someone a cameo instead of uh, an offer letter. I mean, I'm sure you also get the offer letter, but like, so he said that. And then um, Ilya Fushman, who's the the GP at Kleiner that invested, he actually signed up. I mean, he's an investor, it makes sense, but he signed up and to his surprise, somebody paid for him to send them a cameo. It was another startup, but yeah, they paid for him to send a little shout out to somebody who had some lead engineer. Okay. So it's just really funny that the, the way people are using it. So now it's going to cost for like thumbs ups and things yeah. and likes. Likes will cost money. <laughs> right, right, right. Hey everyone, don't forget this episode is brought to you by SharesPost. Okay, so let's pivot into the big drama of the week. So there was a really interesting report, the information published on Brandless. Connie, can you tell us a little bit about what's going on there? Yes. So Brandless is, it's a three-year-old San Francisco-based direct-to-consumer company that sells food, beauty, personal care products, baby products, dog food. And it's sort of special thing is that it says every item is non-genetically modified, kosher, fair trade, gluten-free, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and, and for a long time, it was all priced at exactly $3, uh, which also sort of set it apart from competitors. And it was building up a following. It had this um, founder, uh, CEO, Tina Sharkey, who is a marketing whiz. But I don't think it had become a clear breakout winner when last year it took on a very, very big round of funding, which at the time I think startled, startled people because it was such a young company. It raised $240 million, $200 million of which came from our favorite big backer, SoftBank. And in exchange, SoftBank took 40% of the business. The company now, according to the information, has run into some trouble. I think basically from the point of SoftBank investing the money, it's lost customers. I think its customers are down an estimated like 25% um, from this point a year ago. They've had like quality control issues. They've had some problems with inventory. These are all sort of like normal growing pains, I think, for a startup of its age. But, you know, you add to the mix this investor who's got a lot of money in the company and, according to the information, wants to see them turn a profit, which right. is putting a lot of pressure on them. Exactly. So I was interested... I mean, uh, Brandless raised this $240 million round only one year after launching. So they're a very young company. And then now fast forward another year, SoftBank is pressuring them to be profitable. But right now they're only two years old. So, I mean, what two-year-old startup is even at that point? Well, and what other SoftBank company is profitable? Yeah. Right. So I think when you you look at this, I think for me as an investor, I don't know the ins and outs of what's happening here exactly. But for me, this just really underscores the importance of – um, having a very aligned set of goals and, and, and missions and values and everything else when you when you sign up to work with an investor, right? I mean, the, the company and the investor have to be sort of in lockstep. And when you have an investor that hasn't been around for a really long time, you don't know how they're going to behave really in a downturn or when the company runs into bumps. And I think that kind of behavior sort of through the, the highs and the lows is a really important thing that founders and, and, and other investors need to take a very close look at. One thing that was interesting in the story, at the very end, it said that um, SoftBank had been giving them that, that capital in tranches. Is that the right? Tranches. Yeah, tranches. yeah so, in tranches. Yeah. So, yes. So what happens if there's a tranche set up, right? So, you know, in, in Silicon Valley... It, reputations are incredibly important, right? And so if there are tranches set up and there are certain milestones to hit, you know, I don't, I don't know what the mechanism would be in this case if, let's say, they just decided not to go forward. I, I don't know. And I think that's something to sort of ask of other entrepreneurs who've had similar experiences. And this might be a dumb question, but why not just give them, like, say you give, you're going to give them, uh, break it up into four tranches. Why not just give them like an $80 million investment in the beginning and just leave it be? Yeah, we often ask that question ourselves. I think I think some founders and some boards feel like there's more assurance of, of having that, you know, having that money in the bank. I th- personally think it brings more risk 
because if for any reason, you know, that tranche doesn't come through, it, it's sort of... Um, scares off other investors. It too, does scare it? off other investors. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's sort of like a house that falls out of escrow, right? People mm -hmm. kind of, you know, scratch their head and say, hey, you know, what happened? It presents a lot more questions. And so, I mean, they may have been in a situation where maybe the AD wasn't on the table, let's say, and maybe the only way they could get the deal done was by, you know, structuring it in this way. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think it's a risky bet for people to take. I'm also wondering why, if accurate, and I feel like the information is a very reliable outlet, but, um, you know, why SoftBank would be pressuring them. I'm just wondering, you know, SoftBank's obviously had, I mean, this comes at a bad time for SoftBank. SoftBank is reportedly having trouble raising its vision fund. I thought it was sort of interesting that another one of its fairly young bets, but that's fast growing, Lemonade, was rumored to be thinking about an IPO already. SoftBank owns a lot of Lemonade. I'm just sort of thinking, is it pressured to, you know, produce more in the way of returns faster than maybe it had in mind originally. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, any any fund will tell you. You know, when you're out raising your next fund, you know, your 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 investors in your first fund want to see that liquidity before they re up. So that that might be what's going on here. Yeah, but I mean, that just doesn't seem like the best path forward for SoftBank to start pressuring its really young companies because I think if it's indeed pressuring and see that's a tough word to use which we don't sure, know what don't that know. really right, means right. and we don't know what's going on right, inside right, right. No we have no idea so and i agree i'm sure that the information is a um, reliable outlet but i wonder um kind of exactly what they meant by that um there might just be a, a culture that's developed um because i'm sure brandless is, is attempting to grow and scale very quickly with all that cash there's probably a cult you know i mean oftentimes when you're when you do raise a lot of money and you're a very young company, the culture is, is uh, sacrificed a little and bit. And it's not even probably really set. But you're right. I mean, it sounded like there's a lot of drama internally. They talked about um, a meeting where people were in tears. They've lost a number of people. I think they're COO, their head of business development, their head of supply chain operations. So, but, you know, a bigger concern for the company is the fact that, you know, people are talking. Once people start complaining <laughs> about the situation, it's often, I mean, my experience is covering startups over many years is that it's hard to come back from. Well, it's interesting, too. I mean, I don't know if it's even true that they're pushing the profitability, but you look at the other companies from, you know, you know Uber and Lyft and WeWork, you know, of which, you know, most of which they're in, and they're nowhere near profitable, right? And, and that's, that's okay, but this really young company is, has, I, supposedly, if you believe what was written, and I'm, you know, um, has that expectation. Yeah, I mean, more likely they're being pressured just to grow and, you know, increase That's revenues. That's much more likely. I think yeah. the, the truer piece of this is it's probably more on the top on the top end, right? More on the revenue piece of it. But why don't we transition to another, since we're talking about WeWork. Um, WeWork has made another announcement or another acquisition this week. Uh, this was Waltz, uh, which is a building access and security management startup. So uh, this is a smartphone app uh, and reader that allows users to enter different properties with a single credential uh, and should make it easier for WeWork's enterprise customers, which it's been sort of amassing uh, as fast as it can, including uh, GE Healthcare, excuse me, and Microsoft, it helped them manage their, their memberships to these spaces. So makes perfect sense. Not disclosed. I feel like a lot of WeWork's uh, acquisition prices are not disclosed. I think I usually get the feeling that they're fairly small. Um, they made a bigger bet on, a, on an office management startup called Team, I remember maybe like a yeah, year ago. Yeah, managed by Q, too. And managed yeah. by Q. Yeah, I think they go after smaller startups most of the time. And this one is a 
transaction that I think makes sense. It's a little more obvious, but they've made a ton of acquisitions over the you know last two years. Well, three just this year already. Yeah. So they, I mean, not only have they been really active this year, but I think just in general, they're they're a lot more of an active acquirer than some of the other uh, some of the biggest uh, unicorn companies. Yeah, you're probably right, and I think they've also been um, acquiring sort of like rivals, smaller rivals coming up uh, internationally around the world. But WeWork is also under pressure. And the information had written this week, they talked to some secondary brokers. I don't know if you guys saw this. It's basically trading at like a 21 to $23 billion valuation on the secondary market. Despite having a like $47 billion valuation by uh, its investors, uh, namely SoftBank, which yeah, I guess led its last be, When they go public, it's going to be another Uber situation, I think, where like, it seems like Uber peaked on the its valuation when it was trading secondary markets yeah. as a private company. Yeah. Uh, and also, I guess it's mutual fund investors. I think Fidelity, and I can't remember if it's also T. Rowe, have marked down their investments. So, and, and Fidelity sold like 10% of its stake in the company, which I think that could just be, you know, Fidelity taking money off the management, table, which is fine. Uh, right, right, yeah, right. Management exactly. of liquidity and things like that. Yeah. But it's always kind of, I'm well, sure, Well, they already had these mini IPOs with mm-hmm. SoftBank investments. So I think it, right. yeah, it just completely changes. But, you know, I think a lot of people wanted to get out. So SoftBank wanted to uh, invest a $16 billion, uh, buy $16 billion worth of shares or whatever. Um, I think back in December, its limited partners would only allow it to sell t- or to invest $2 billion. But I think people were hoping to sell into that round, which didn't kind of come together the that way they thought it. That round was the strangest round because I remember reading, oh, like uh, SoftBank's going to invest $16 billion and we work and everyone being like, wow, that's a lot of money. And then all of a sudden they're like, let's just put $2 billion. And that's a huge difference. It's a lot of money. Well, they burned, is, they burned yeah. that last year, right? Mm-hmm. So they're, yeah. So yeah. If it was but imagine two. being WeWork being counting on $16 billion right. and then ending up with right. $2 billion. Yikes. There's one other thing, but I, you know, you've covered IPOs uh, for a long time, but it's also being sued by two former employees who are accusing it of, I think, gender and age discrimination. Right. One was a former senior vice president um, who said uh, that an overwhelming number of large pay packages went to male executives. And then there was a former construction executive who said he was replaced by someone younger. I'm sure this is not that unusual, but it's not a good look for the company. You know, nobody wants this kind of publicity. WeWork does try to stress that it's equal. I think it's got like a 50%, half of its workforce is men, half is women. But you were noting, Rebecca, earlier that its entire board is made yeah, up of men. Yeah, the entire board is made up of men. And I think, you know, saying you're 50-50 is, is amazing and terrific. I think where the rubber meets the road is when you look at total comp for a company, is that total comp, you know, anywhere near, uh, near sort of 50-50. My guess here, just based upon... Um, sort of allegations that are, you know, if, the, if they prove to be true, would that be like that? It wouldn't be close to fifty-fifty at all in terms of total comp. And so I think, you know, my what we stress, you know, on boards and things is just when you look at comp and you look at how that's distributed, it's not just about having a couple of women around the table. That's great. We need that. It's also about, you know, that the comp also being sort of somewhat equitable. And if not, then we know we have some kind of um, issue that we should be working towards. But it did shock me that their, their whole board, especially post Uber and all these issues, that the entire pre-IPO that, I mean, usually that would be something you would try to be working on if that was really your, your goal. And their whole board is men, which yeah. surprised me a bit. And but Adam Newman is a very unique type of CEO, too. I wonder if that's even something he, to be frank, even cares at all about. Well, I don't know. I have no idea. I mean, he does consider that his wife, Rebecca, is a co-founder, even though I don't think she is actively involved in the company's sort of day-to-day management. She's kind of gotten involved in a subsidiary that's a a school that they're trying to start. Um, But I I do think 
publicly traded companies. It's, you know, I remember when Twitter changed its board. I mean, everybody's sort of like... Yeah, you've been other other VCs and board members on that board mm-hmm. that should be at least managing this issue, yeah, right? That right. You, but you, I think he's got an enormous stand. amount of power, though, too. Oh, yes. Yeah, so. absolutely. So speaking of WeWork, you know, what's amazing to me is this co-working craze that it's kicked off. I mean, it's hard to throw a cat these days without hitting a, hitting a co-working space. I wrote about this startup that CNN had first reported on last week called Alma, which is a co-working space for therapists. Office Depot was launching more co-working spaces. They called them Workonomy Hubs. Hotels are doing it. Restaurants are turning their dining rooms into co-working spaces during the afternoon. I think it's really interesting. I mean, basically, every underutilized space is becoming a co-working space. And beyond that, there's so many verticals. So I love this. I mean, I, I love this space for a few reasons. One is, yes, you can, you can, these, these, uh, real estate assets become much more liquid, right? So from an investor hat, I think that's great. I think the more verticalized they are, just the more powerful they are. But the thing I saw in this trend that made me smile was really this backlash to the loneliness of social media, right? Sure. So we're seeing these these co-working spaces as, as an opportunity for people to actually interact face-to-face to get real value from um, from other people that are interested in the same thing they're interested in. And I think that that sort of gives me hope that uh, that everything is not lost with social media. Absolutely. So I wonder about the vertical um, plays in terms of whether they're any more or less sticky than general spaces. I, On the one hand, I do think they probably are because you're around like-minded people. You're probably talking about your similar projects. Maybe you have, you know, contacts that are relevant to your colleagues. Uh, but on the other hand, it's limiting, obviously. Like Alma, if it's appealing to psychiatrists and psychologists and other people of their ilk who want to sort of share office space and uh, maybe even, you know, sort of drum up patients together, I think that's great. But I wonder, like, how big a company could that be? Just yeah, I had the same thought too. I yeah. think it depends on the vertical. I think with the wing, for example, you know, it, it hits a chord for women in general. I think that um, that can be very big. And you look at the Soho houses, battery, things like that, which you could argue is sort of the same type of idea on a different kind of dimension. And, and I think, I mean, I, I think what they've shown is they're fairly sticky. And I think in terms of how big, it, it really depends just what that vertical is they're going after. I think so. The wing, obviously, there's a lot of women. Fifty like percent, right? Yeah, that's a pretty right, big. Right. Pre- that's a pretty right, big right. swath. Um, so I guess right, as you say, it just depends on the vertical. Okay, well, I think um, that's great for today. Um, thanks, you guys, for joining me. And I do just want to say really quickly that um, this is a little bit of a historical episode for Equity because it was the first ever one with an all-female production and hosting and guests. So there's totally four women in the room. Yeah, yeah completely unplanned. So um, that's awesome. And please come back next week to hear us again. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thank you. All right, everybody, thank you for listening, and a big thank you to Connie Loizos, our producer, Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovet, and we will see you all right here next week. Hey, 